This is the Education Gadfly Show. Well said, Petrilli. Boom. Huh? Huh? No canceling me today, baby. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Jennifer Alexander. Jen, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. I will introduce you more properly in a moment, but first, let's welcome to the show, as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Good to have you on. Well, for those that don't know, Jen is the Executive Director of the Policy Innovators and Education Network, or the PI Network. And we're going to talk about what the PI Network is. I am very proud that I had some role in creating PyNet way back when, and so excited about how well it's doing. Uh, Jen has been working in the national, state, and local levels for over 20 years to bridge gaps between education policy, research, politics, and practice. Before uh, heading to PyNet, she was the executive director of ConCan, part of the 50Can network. It's just great to have you on the show. So welcome, welcome. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. We are here to talk about education reform in the states. We wanted to do a roundup of what happened last legislative session. These sessions generally happen in the spring and wrap up before the end of June. We are now in that moment when, uh, well, there's a lot of elections happening and the state legislative races and gubernatorial races, some state boards, state superintendent races. Meanwhile, the education reform advocacy sector is waiting to see who's going to win these races and then get to work in January on pushing an agenda. So everybody's thinking ahead. But before we do that, let's look back just a bit to say what were the big wins this year. So let's do that on Ed Reform Update. All right. So first of all, Jen, just tell us a bit more about PyNet for people that are not familiar with this fantastic organization. Pi Network is a voluntary national membership uh, organization of state and local advocacy organizations and national policy partners. And we are now at about 150 members. The vast majority of those are state and local advocacy organizations and about 30 something are national partners like Fordham. And we exist to help connect, support, and catalyze advocacy uh, across the country to make sure that every student has the opportunity to get an education that they need to achieve a future without limits. Beautiful. You know, so when people say the education reform movement, I mean, this is it. I mean, it's incredible. 150 organizations are out there every day working to promote education reform. And like you said, most of them are not think tanks like Fordham National. Uh, They are groups working to drive legislative agendas at state capitals, or in many cases, uh, local reform agendas with local school boards, sometimes parent organizing groups, grassroots organizations. I find it inspirational. Whenever I get together with the PyNet crowd, which I get to do usually at least twice a year, it's really exciting and energizing. And they're out there pushing a boulder up a mountain that is trying to get reforms passed, but most importantly, trying to make good things happen for kids, close achievement gaps. And right now, in the wake of the pandemic, trying to make sure that our schools get their act together for the COVID generation. There's been a lot of hand-wringing lately about the terrible state of the world, including, in some cases, ed reform. But there are some good news stories, right? Tell us those. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I just, you know, Mike, want to thank you for um, for your support of the network. And um, when you helped start this organization like 15-ish years ago, 
There were only about 15 organizations that were part of the original group. And I think the growth in the network is exciting and um, reflects the growth in the advocacy sector itself. And just in the last like five years, we've grown over 50%, which is really exciting to see that level of growth in the advocacy sector. That means more leaders, more organizations trying to push the system to change. And most of our members are really small teams. Mm-hmm. Um, that are very state and locally grounded and focused. So just want to say like that, I think alone is really exciting. Um, and we're all about to come together this fall to a packed uh, house and to share ideas and strategies. And we're going to talk about what members um, achieved in the last session. And every single Pi Network member reported a win in some category of our policy pillars in the network. And I'll give you some highlights, but the top area that members reported wins on was around supporting public charter school expansion and access and funding. The second top area for policy wins was around achieving some sort of education finance reform, whether that's fixing this, the formula through which state funds are distributed, making sure the dollars get where they're needed most. The third area of the most top wins was around college and career pathway work, making sure that students are set up for success after high school. The fourth was around educator preparation and licensure, trying to expand pathways to teaching, particularly focusing on making sure that we have high quality and diverse teachers and leaders in our schools. And the fourth which really cuts across a whole bunch of areas, was around making sure that students have what they need to accelerate their learning and well-being in the wake of COVID and making sure that the dollars that went to schools and districts is spent in a way that will meet students' needs. So lots of efforts around trying to force transparency around that spending and influence those decisions. So I can give you tons of examples in there from red, blue, and purple states, and I, I think it's really exciting. Let's talk about some of the specific examples. Let's say, for example, Tennessee, big funding reform push in Tennessee. Was this a big deal? What happened? It's a huge deal and, you know, took many, many years to to achieve. So there was a, a large coalition including lots of Pi Network members, Tennessee SCORE, Tennesseans for Student Success, the Tennessee Charter School Center, Tennessee CAN, Excel and Ed, Ed Trust. And this coalition got together and changed the state's education system, uh, education funding system, which happens like once in a generation mm-hmm. and shifted it to a weighted, what we call like a weighted student funding formula, which means it's based on the individual needs of students and better supports Uh, getting dollars to students with the highest learning needs. It was passed on a bipartisan basis and really is now being looked at as a model Mm -hmm. for other states seeking to enact funding reform. And we're hearing from states, particularly in the Southeast, who are interested in what Tennessee has just done and thinking about how they could do that for their state. So that's a really big deal. It's interesting. I mean, Tennessee now has become, of course, a very red state. Uh, Republican governor, Republican legislature. And here they pass a funding reform that sounds like is very much about giving more money to poor kids, school serving poor kids, not necessarily their own constituents. I assume that there was also, though, some wins within that for, for example, charter schools in Tennessee to make sure that they got more fair funding as well. Of course, most of those schools serve high needs kids also. So, I mean, this is an interesting example here where you know, bipartisanship in ed reform still can happen. It's not just like, oh, well, only in the blue states can you get school funding uh, increases for high poverty schools. That's right. I think it's a really interesting example of sometimes people don't like to use the word equity, but an equity focus or um, a focus on student need in a red state. And um, it was a bipartisan coalition 
that worked very clearly in their own lanes to get this passed and a, and a bipartisan vote to, to pass this bill. So I think that's a really interesting example and one that, that lots of folks are going to be looking at. And another one in deep blue Illinois to get charter facilities funding done as well. Cutting across type here, you know, because we've been talking in recent years about, well, you know, look, with the polarization, uh, maybe you're going to see red state policies going in one direction, blue state policies going on another. Maybe you do see that when it comes to some of the culture war stuff, but not here. David, you want to get in here. And now you stole my question, Mike. I guess I'm curious to just hear Jen generalize a little bit about what, what you feel like you're seeing out there. Is the, is, the, is the coalition holding together or not? I have faith that it is. And some of the examples that the Tennessee example that Mike talked about or the, the example in Illinois where they uh, advocates there, including the Illinois Network of Charter Schools, Pine Network member, achieved this victory in a per-pupil state-funded facilities fund for charter schools. Uh, meeting a huge need in the state, something they've been working at for a long time and that, you know, some might think wasn't possible in a deep blue state. Um, but they did it through, you know, smart political activism, uh, you know, smart coalitions and really strategic advocacy. I think there are other examples like in Colorado, there was a coalition, including lots of Pine Network members across party lines that achieved five bipartisan workforce bills last session. Um, I think those are great examples of working across party lines to do good work for kids. Is it easy in this current political environment? No, certainly not. I don't think any of us are naive enough to think that. But I think it's still possible. And I think these efforts are some that show what that still looks like. Back to Tennessee. I mean, here's a state that has one of the most contentious debates around an anti-CRT bill. And I'm pretty sure that that split some of those groups down there, again, on left-right grounds, and yet they're able to work together on something like school funding. So that that's encouraging. That's the way, look, it's supposed to work like this, that you, you work together on issues you can agree on, and otherwise you have to agree to disagree. The other thing I'd say, it, but tell me what you think, Jen, it helps that there's all this federal money. The states have a ton of money. Now, partly that's because of the economy and, and their own coffers are coming in with their own state taxes, but also the American Rescue Plan, the, the money that went to the governors and to ESSER, there's a lot of money. And so that's it's making it easier, right? You, you can get funding reforms. You can get more money for chart. I mean, if, if it, you're not taking, you're not robbing Peter to pay Paul, Peter and Paul are getting plenty and then some. I would say our members definitely think that there that this create that this federal money creates an opportunity to pass reforms that might be difficult otherwise. It also is going to create huge challenges in the days ahead when this yeah. funding dries up and we're seeing, you know, declining enrollment and all kinds of other trends that are going to make it, you know, a pretty steep cliff in the coming year. So that's something that's certainly on the minds of lots of members as they look into this next legislative session and the ones ahead. Well, very well said. We will leave it there. Jen, thanks so much for coming on the show. And it, again, it's it's encouraging and important for us to remember, as tough as things are sometimes, especially the, this culture war that's driving me crazy, you know, good things are still happening out there for kids. I think that's right. I think, you know, at the end of the day, what's good for kids is not, is not a partisan issue. And our members are, if they're able to stay focused on that, can continue to do really good work. And the Eddie's Awards this year are going to be a great example of that. So thanks so much for giving us an opportunity to talk about Pineapple Members' work. All right. Jen Alexander, Executive Director of the Policy Innovators in Education Network. We'll have to get you on the show sometime again soon. Until then, it's now time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute.
Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So, you know, we are recording this podcast just at the time when the hurricane is bearing down on Florida, so which is terrible. And of course, we hope everybody there does okay, including folks in the education world. By the time this comes out, I guess we'll know just how bad it is. Yes. It does feel like it's always part of the back to school season here. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I have a friend in Tampa. She is headed out and she doesn't normally do that. So I know that this is uh, really signaling seriousness for the folks in the path of this thing. I will date myself. I can remember Hurricane Andrew hitting. Mm -hmm. I think I was, I don't know what grade, maybe sophomore, junior year in high school. This was in uh, what, the late 80s, early 90s. I feel like maybe we saw it kind of have this half memory that did we have TVs in our classroom already back then or was <laughs> am I just making that up? I'm sure there's other people who probably, uh, you know, remember Katrina from there. Uh, mm-hmm, absolutely. That's true, Mike. I do remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Were, were you like, I don't know, like a, like eight years old in your pajamas at the time? Or? No, I was in high school. I think. <laughs> okay. Well, we, we are still jealous of you, David, for your youth. <laughs> Uh, relatively speaking. It won't stay with you, though. <laughs> doesn't doesn't seem to be staying. <laughs> All right. Well, Amber, what you got for us this week on the research front? I have a mostly descriptive study from Nicholas Zill and Bradford Wilcox. It examines whether family structure has mattered more or less over time relative to the frequency of a few relevant indicators that we can measure almost 25 years apart on the National Household Education Surveys, or NHES. So the first NHES administration they're looking at is from 1996. Uh, That surveyed about almost 18,000 parents of elementary and secondary students. And the second administration of that NHES was in 2019 and surveyed parents of about 16,000 students. They are comparing traditional families, and that is defined as two married parents and their biological children. And then what goes in the other bucket is any other family structure, because I kept searching for this and making sure I was right. So that in that bucket is single parent, single step parent, two married parents, gay or straight, with adopted children, or two two married parents, but only one is technically the biological parent and so on. So this comparison bucket is pretty big. Uh, The authors focus on four negative academic outcomes of interest. If a child repeated one or more grades, if a child had been suspended or expelled, if parents were contacted about their child's schoolwork, and if parents were contacted about their child's behavior in school. They also adjusted for the results afterwards. They controlled for parent education level, race, and ethnicity and the ages and genders of students in both family structures. Overall, the incidence of all four of those outcomes were lower in 2019 compared to 1996. Suspensions and grade uh, grade repetition were down by more than half. You know, we know we've had this thing about suspension, so maybe that was reflected in the data. Uh, The incidence of schools reaching out to parents about student behavior and schoolwork was also uh, lower. In both surveys, however, students from non-traditional families, that big bucket, uh, were still more likely to experience these negative outcomes than their peers from this traditional, you know, more structure. Over time, the declines in the frequencies of the indicators were greater uh, for married biological families. So again, that's the way that they're comparing these things. 
Uh, the risk declined when the odds ratios were adjusted, adjusted for these things that I told you about. So the differences across family types and racial composition, parental education level, the age and the sex of the students in each group, uh, and so on. But again, the students in the comparison group still had nearly triple the risk of suspension and double the risk of grade repetition, as well as parents being contacted about their child's behavior. That was also statistically significant. Uh, they do note descriptively, again, that the proportion of U.S. students living in single-parent, step-parent, and other of these family structures increased a bit between 1996 and 2019. It was went from 41% to 43.5% of the total, so not as much growth as we've seen in prior years, especially among single-parent families. They don't examine potential mechanisms for the difference in some of these very uh, limited uh, indicators nor do they look at some of the differences in the comparison group, which I think was a pretty big, important thing to do, but that was that was not done. Um, but they do say that at least on these particular indicators that they look at, even though family structures of the less traditional type aren't stigmatized as much as they once were, that being raised by one's married parents still appears to have some advantages that have stayed steady. David? After you, Petrilli. I, <laughs> I, I feel like the, the design of the study makes it almost impossible not to give offense, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting about, you know, all those categories collapsed into one. I don't know if that was a sample size issue or what. I'm um, sure it was. Probably was. So yeah, that, that's not ideal. Some good news here, right? I mean, one is, yes, that the family uh, stuff in America has stabilized. And, you know, you said increased by a couple percent. That could just be you know, these newer forms of families we didn't have back then. But the, the fact that single parent families, that, that has kind of plateaued back in the 90s, there was a lot of hand wringing and worry about this growth in single parent families, just explosive growth from the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, and lots of evidence that that was not great for kids. And so at least that problem hasn't gotten worse, even if it hasn't necessarily gotten better. And of course, we have to always say, we know, of course, there's lots and lots and lots of amazing single parents out there doing a great job, uh, but these risk factors are real, right? And then this stuff about the suspensions and the calls home for misbehavior have, have gone down again. It's so hard to know what to make of that. As the authors say, that could be a policy change or that could reflect actual improvements in student behavior, and we just don't know. But it's it's still important to remember when, when we see these disparities, we talk about racial disparities all the time. We should also talk about disparities by these family structure types. In both cases, you know, my opinion is there's this root cause here, which is about poverty. It's not about race per se. Is it about family structure per se? Well, it's chicken and an egg kind of thing. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, some kids in this country are still growing up in very challenging circumstances. Those kids tend to be in single parent families and are more likely to be black. And so we got to keep at it. Everything we can do to help make sure that more kids in America, all kids in America have a, a good start. Well said, Petrilli. Boom. <laughs> huh? Huh? No canceling me today, baby. I would what? never cancel you, Mike. That was that was spot on, Mike. It was really spot on. <laughs> all right. I, look, you're not going to get any pushback from me on this. I don't think there is a lot of pushback, honestly. I, I think people have different attitudes about how we talk about this stuff. I don't think anybody really believes it's a good thing when you wind up with a single parent household. Everybody knows it's challenging and it's mostly about, I'm not even sure there is a debate anymore. I think it's mostly just about how people think we should discuss this stuff publicly. I think there are 
Some other changes that we're not seeing in these data, I mean, obviously, I'm probably the wrong person to characterize this, but I feel like what is meant by a single parent household or a non-traditional household, even aside from the, the things that Amber said, is shifting kind of below the top line data. And I think that some of what is showing up in the data as single parent households, in fact, it's more complicated than that. And which is not to say that it's necessarily ideal, but it's just to say that, you know, the sort of binary indicator doesn't capture, you know, where exactly dad is, whether or not he's in the picture, whether he's Mm -hmm. making payments, presence Mm -hmm. of grandparents, yada, yada, yada. I mean, you get the sense that norms have changed around this stuff and that marriage isn't quite capturing it as much as it used to. Without taking away from the point, there's a lot to be said for a traditional marriage and the stability it provides. You know, we also get the sense that families are making it worth in other ways. And I even I even know people mm-hmm. you know, who, who mm-hmm. have chosen not to get married, right? Who I would ne- are nevertheless in what I would describe as very committed relationships. Uh, and so that's the other thing that I guess it just made me wonder about. Yeah. No, it's almost like the, the European style common law marriage almost. And personally, as a child of divorce, um, I will just, you know, say on that little note, you know, my parents never put my sister and I in the middle, you know, never uh, was very, mm-hmm. I mean, it was an amicable split, you know. So I think those are the types of things David's getting at, you know, all these yeah. other conditions that are swirling around that that we don't uh, know about and they may be impacting the situation for good or not. People are complicated. I will say, though, Mike, I, I recently got ditched because my, my high achieving life partner decided to go on a business trip and I was left with two <laughs> small children. And I will say the, the fundamental notion that that is challenging and leads to a less enriching environment uh, is deeply intuitive. to me. <laughs> it, is, it is really, really hard. I'm, I'm very happy when everyone's well fed and goes to sleep at a reasonable hour. David's but, children have been watching screens and eating out of cans. All right. <laughs> Mostly they've been running riot. Yes. But. <laughs> All right, gang. Hey, we really got to wrap it up. Good stuff, Amber. Thanks for bringing us that one. That is all the time for this week, though. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrillia. Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.